السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respects the listeners We gather for the reading and study of a very famous hadith related by Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha a hadith which details a particular expedition of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and a resulting trial and tribulation for Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and also the Muslims. It's a very famous hadith for many reasons. One of them is that these are the personal, these are the words and a personal testimony of Aisha radiallahu anha herself. She was extremely eloquent. Her, after all, she was the daughter of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu And on one occasion when she had a verbal contest with a co-wife, Zainab bint Jahsh radiyallahu anha, and she silenced her. So much so that in one narration, the the mouth of Zainab bint Jahsh radiyallahu anha became dry and she was left confounded and speechless. And this was in the presence of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He remarked by saying that after all, she is the daughter of Abu Bakr. In that... Just as Abu Bakr was a man of letters, a poet, and one of the nobles of Quraysh, and a leading man of the Arabic language, his daughter was no less than him in her knowledge of the Arabic language and its poetry, and she was extremely eloquent. And this single narrative, very long hadith, has actually been held up as a brilliant example of Arabic literature. So in anthologies of Arabic literature, this hadith features prominently because it's the personal account of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. The hadith is also important because it contains many details about, and many details about <coughs> incidents during the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which then themselves led to laws being established. So for the ulama of fiqh and for Islamic law and jurisprudence, this hadith serves as a very strong basis for a number of rulings. But let's begin the hadith and inshallah, bit by bit as we move along, we'll understand more and more of the circumstances and details of the hadith. For those of you who aren't aware, for a number of years we've been going through the commentary or we've been actually going through the book, the abridged version of Sahih al-Bukhari. So the hadith is from Sahih al-Bukhari, and I've been commenting on, on these hadith. And today we've reached this particular hadith. And Aisha radiallahu anha qalat, it is related from Aisha radiallahu anha that she said, كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم 
when Allah's Messenger وسلم, السفرة, when he would intend to go out on a journey, he would draw lots amongst his wives. The Prophet وسلم, had a number of wives, and although according to a number of scholars he he was under no obligation to divide his time equally between them but as a paragon of justice that's exactly what the prophet sallallahu would do furthermore in islamic fiqh if a person has more than one wife and then they are under no obligation to divide their time equally when on a journey. So, all the more so for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he was under no obligation to divide his time equally in any sense, at home or on a journey. But even when traveling, he wouldn't just make an arbitrary decision and randomly pick, or particularly pick who he wished, rather in the spirit of fairness and to ensure that the he appeased the sentiments of all of the wives, he would draw lots. So whatever was the decision and whatever was the qadr, and whoever, whosever name emerged when drawing lots, that wife or number of wives would travel with the Prophet And we learn on many different journeys, sometimes uh, not all of the wives accompanied him, but different wives accompanied him, sometimes fewer, sometimes more. On some occasions, possibly only one. <coughs> so he would draw lots. So here, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha describes a general rule that whenever he would travel, he would draw lots amongst his wives. And the drawing of lots is entirely permissible uh, since there's no monetary reward involved and there's no element of risk one of the main reasons why gambling has been forbidden is the unacceptable level of risk and unfairness to all the parties involved. So, but here, since there's no monetary contribution or reward, there's no gross loss to anyone or any level of unacceptable risk. So drawing lots is permissible, and I'll speak about this further maybe at the end of the hadith regarding some of the laws of drawing lots. But as a general rule, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says, whenever the Prophet sallallahu wished to travel on a journey, he would draw lots amongst his wives. Whosever name emerged, she would accompany him. He would draw lots amongst his wives. So whoever of them, her name emerged in that lot, he would take her with him. So he drew lots amongst us in a military expedition which he launched. So my lots emerged. The words sahm, sahm means arrow, and that's how the Arabs would draw lots. That was one method. In the Qur'an, Allah speaks about Maryam salam that the priests of the temple had gathered in order to decide who would look after Maryam salam. Each one was very eager to do so because of the, her prestigious lineage, the fact that she was dedicated to the Worship of Allah and the service of the house of Allah. For this and many of the reasons, the priests and the elders were all eager to singularly and specifically and exclusively claim the adoption and the caring and maintenance and the custody of Maryam alayhi salam, the mother of the Prophet Isa alayhi salam. So how did they do it? Allah informed the Messenger وسلم, that they drew lots. And their method of drawing lots was through pens. 
Allah says, O Messenger of Allah, you weren't present with them when they were casting their pens. That who of them would take custody of Maryam? So their method of drawing lots was by flinging pens or bamboo sticks, which were pens, in the water. And whichever one either preceded the others or remained afloat, that was a choice. Here, the Arabs, one of their methods was they would draw arrows. And they would have a number of arrows and who, each one would choose an arrow. So whoever's arrow would come out, that would be their lot. This is what's referred to in the Qur'an as well, where Allah says, That indeed, alcohol, gambling, and the altars of sacrifice, ansab, these are all evil and abominations of the work of the devil. And the fourth thing which he mentions, along with alcohol and gambling, is azlam. Azlam means arrows. But what particular arrows? The arrows of divination. The arrows would go to holy men uh, whenever they wanted to do something, and they would ask these holy men, shall I travel, should I not travel, should I undertake this business enterprise, shouldn't I, should I marry, shouldn't I marry. So in all of these major decisions, the Arabs would, just like the Greeks, would consult the oracle. The Arabs would consult their holy men. One of their ways of doing it would be through arrows of divination. So the holy man or the soothsayer would have particular arrows and whatever, he would randomly choose an arrow and his arrows were named yes, no. So if no came out, regardless, he would say, the arrow says no. The arrow says yes. So they would actually act on that. So the Qur'an says that these arrows of divination are an abomination and the work of shaitan. And the reason for that is because they would rely randomly on something such as this. Furthermore, these people, uh, their faith was not in Allah or in Qadr, but rather in these holy spirits and in the occult. So the Qur'an abolished that. Allah has given us istikhara in substitution of these arrows of divination. So the arrows were used for, div- for divination, for divining, portents and omens, and also to draw lots. Drawing lots is permissible. So the word of the hadith is sahmi, meaning my arrow emerged. But it doesn't mean that the Prophet ﷺ actually used arrows. This was the origin of drawing lots. So it means a share. So my share emerged. Uh, in fact, in modern Arabic, uh, shares on the stock market are referred to as ashan. That's one of the names given to them. It just means a share. So, Umm al Aisha radiallahu anha says, فَخَرَجَ sahmi." So, my share emerged. فَخَرَجْتَ مَعَهُ So, I went on this journey with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. بَعْدَمَا أُنزِلَ الْحِجَابِ After hijab had been revealed, meaning after the laws of hijab had been revealed. Now, which journey was this? Which expedition was this? This was, she says that, the Prophet ﷺ drew lots on this particular journey, a military expedition that he launched. Which journey was this? When was this? This journey was known as Ghazwatul Muraisiyah. <coughs> it has two names actually. Ghazwatul Muraisiyah or Ghazwatul Banil Mustaliq. And this was in the fifth year of Hijrah, in the month of Sha'ban. So, actually, on the second day of Sha'ban, the third day of Sha'ban, meaning two nights had passed. So on the third day of Sha'ban, in the fifth year of Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ embarked on this journey. And he remained away from the city of Medina for approximately 28 days. He arrived just before the beginning of the month of Ramadan in the fifth year of Hijrah. 
where did he travel to? He travelled towards the settlements or the inhabited lands of a tribe known as Banu Mustariq. So a bit of background to the actual military expedition, because a lot happened. In this journey, a lot happened. It wasn't just a case of the famous story of Aisha radiallahu anha, but much more happened. And if I can just give a summary, and this is one of the reasons why we're actually studying the hadith, not all the details are to be found in the hadith. The reason why this hadith is so important is because it was a very important and critical period in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. As a summary, he embarked on a military expedition known as the Banu al-Mustaliq campaign, or the campaign of Muraisi. Both refer to the same thing. He was absent for approximately a month. The hypocrites also joined him on this journey for reasons of their own. A battle or a raid took place. In that raid, the Prophet wasallam uh, and the Muslims were victorious. About 700 of them left from Medina. And they fought against Banu Mustaliq, the tribe, or a sub-tribe. They were victorious, only one Muslim died, and the, a number of the enemy were, defeated, were killed, but the majority of them were actually captured. And amongst the captives was Juwayriya, the daughter of the leader, uh, who was known as Al-Harith. And she eventually became the wife of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and she is the famous Juwayriyat bint al-Harith. Her story in itself was remarkable. When she married the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, all the Muslims released the, all the captives. Then, later, her father and her brothers embraced Islam. Most of the tribe embraced Islam. And from that moment onwards, even though hitherto they had been enemies of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, they were one of the supporting tribes for the Muslims. And even in the conquest of Mecca in the 8th year of Hijrah, one of the divisions or part of the division of the Muslim army that conquered Mecca was made up by soldiers and the tribesmen of Banu Mustaliq. On the return to the journey, a number of events took place, including uh, a quarrel between uh, two Muslims, one from Medina, one from Mecca, meaning one of the Muhajirun and one of the Ansar. As a result of this quarrel, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, the leader of the hypocrites, who was actually part of this expedition, he seized this opportunity to sow discord amongst the Muslims. And he also made comments about Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. One of the young companions heard these comments and he came and complained to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Unfortunately, because Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was a very prominent figure, others argued on behalf, others argued and sincerely because some of them felt that the Sahabi Zayd ibn Arqam radiyallahu anh, may have misheard what Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was saying since he was only a child. So he was disbelieved, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was believed, Zayd ibn Arqam in shame and embarrassment he went into hiding and then Allah Azza wa Jal actually revealed Surah Al-Munafiqun and in there he proved the truthfulness and the honesty and the veracity of Zayd ibn Arqam radiyallahu an, and Allah revealed to him what Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul did actually say. So this was also the, revel- the occasion for the revelation of Surah Al-Munafiqun. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was forever seeking an opportunity to create trouble for the Prophet of Allah and the Muslims. And on the same journey, later, uh, closer to Medina, the, when the army had settled that night, and camped, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha had gone out to answer the call of nature. She lost her necklace, and while searching for it, the arm, she drifted away, and 
the army, when she returned, she realised that the camp had broken and resumed their journey. She, in her innocence, fell asleep and she was then discovered by Safan ibn al-Mu'attal, a companion who had been appointed to act as the rear scouter on part of the Muslims. So he came and he discovered Aisha radiallahu anha. So he brought her safely to the Muslim camp the next morning. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sadul, again seizing this opportunity to sow discord, create fitna, he instigated a rumor that Safan ibn Mu'attal and Aisha radiallahu anha had committed adultery. And this was spread in the camp and the news spread like wildfire. Aisha radiallahu anha in innocence didn't realize. When she reached Medina, she fell ill and then word began to filter through to her. And then for approximately a whole month, the household of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was in turmoil. The Muslims were in turmoil. Medina was in turmoil. And it took a whole month for this matter to be resolved. And it was only resolved when Allah revealed verses of Surah An-Nur, minkum, uh, which absolved Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha of any blame, of any ill repute, and exonerated her totally and declared her innocence. <clears throat> so this, the hadith, is mainly about the personal trial and tragic tribulation of Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. But this is the background. So these are just some of the details that will be contained in the hadith. And this is why I said it's such an important hadith. Anyway, going back, so... Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says whenever the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa would travel, he would draw lots amongst his wives. He embarked on an, on, on an expedition and he drew lots. My name came out, so I accompanied him. Now, which expedition was this? As I said, this was the military expedition of Banu al-Mustaliq, which is also known as Muraysiya. It took place in Sha'ban in the fifth year of Hijrah. Now, who were Banu Mustaliq? Where did they live? This is important to some degree, so I'll explain. The Arabs lived in a very tribal society. And one cannot actually understand much of the seerah or the history of Islam and the Muslims, especially in the early days of Mecca and Medina and during the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam without gaining an insight into this tribal society, its norms, its customs, its methods uh, and even the individual tribes and their relationship with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Makkah al-Mukarramah was originally and when I mean originally I don't mean from the very beginning but uh, at least for a good few generations before Islam, many generations, for a long time, uh, Makkah al-Mukarramah was occupied and controlled by Banu Khuzar, a very large, famous and powerful tribe, the Khuzar tribe. This was not the tribe of the Quraysh. The Quraysh were a different tribe. Quraysh, eventually, one of the leaders of the Quraysh, who was known as Qusay, Qusay ibn Kilab, Qusay ibn Kilab, he was one of the leads of the Quraysh. He launched an attack against Makkah al-Mukarramah and he drove out the Khuzar. And Qusay then became the undisputed leader of Mecca. And he was one of the great grandfathers of the Prophet And not too far back either, the Prophet father was Abdullah. His father was Abdul Muttalib, his father was Hashim, his father was Abdul Manaf, and Abdul Manaf's father was Qusay. So he was the conqueror of Makkah al-Mukarramah. When he conquered Mecca, he and the remaining clans of the Quraysh, they seized Mecca and they drove out the Khuzar. The Khuzar dispersed 
around Makkah al-Mukarramah. And they just took up residence in different areas because these were nomads. They wouldn't just stay in one area, but they had huge areas that they would occupy and move with the rains and the seasons. One of the sub-tribes of Khuzar was Banu Mustaliq, a very powerful tribe. But it was one of the sub-tribes of Khuzar. They also lived in that area. So by the time of the Prophet ﷺ's hijrah, and the time that with the period that we are speaking of now, in the fifth year of Hijrah, the Banu Mustaliq lived to the north of Makkah, between Makkah and Medina, but closer to Makkah, along the Hijrah route, quite simply parallel to the Red Sea. So they lived closer to the sea and uh, along the route of uh, Hijrah and also along the trade routes between Makkah and Sham, Syria. This was the region that they occupied. And like I said, they would move around because they were nomadic. So, Banu Mustaliq, one of the areas that they would occupy along with the movement of the rains and the seasons was a famous oasis or uh, an area, not an oasis, but an area where there were many wells and natural water and a fertile region that was known as Muraisiyah. So Muraisir was just one of their areas that they would occupy at different times. This is where the Prophet ﷺ actually fought against them and defeated them. And it's not too far from the sea. So it was in the direction of the... From Medina, it was in the western direction, southwestern direction. So the Prophet ﷺ in the fifth year of Hijrah, marched against him. Now, why did he do so? One of the reasons is that in the Battle of Badr, the Quraysh fought against Muslims and were defeated. After their defeat in the Battle of Badr, in the second year of Hijrah, in the month of Ramadan, the Meccans plotted their revenge and they also sought the assistance of other tribes, since many of their most powerful leaders had been had fallen. And one of the tribes whom they sought assistance from was Banu Mustaliq. So in the Battle of Uhud, Banu Mustaliq actually assisted the Quraysh in fighting the Muslims. So that was in the third year of Hijrah, in the month of Shawwal. So ever since then, the Banu Mustaliq posed a threat to the Muslims because they had already participated in the Battle of Uhud. But furthermore, after the Battle of Uhud, Banu Mustaliq, independently of the Quraysh, were plotting and planning to attack the Muslims, attack Medina. And for a whole two years after the Battle of Uhud, they were making their preparations. The Prophet ﷺ got wind of this, and he decided to make some inquiries. So he sent one of the companions known as Buraydah to Banu Mustaliq. And Buraydah said to the Prophet ﷺ, or Messenger of Allah, do I have your permission to say whatever I need to? So he granted him permission. So Buraydah went to the leader of Banu Mustaliq, who was known as Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar. Now Al-Harith was a leader. He was the one who was plotting against Muslims. So Buraydah radiyallahu anh went to Al-Harith and he was asked by Al-Harith, who are you? So he said, I'm one of your people and I have come because I have learned that you wish to fight or launch an attack against Muslims and I also wish to achieve the same. And I want to gather men and an army against Muslims. So Al-Harith said, well, indeed, this is what we are planning. So by deceiving Al-Harith in this manner and purporting to be one of, the, uh, one of their own, Buraydah won the confidence of Al-Harith. He acted as a spy. And through this espionage, he gained the details of Al-Harith's plans. 
He then returned to the Prophet ﷺ and notified him of the plans of Banu Mustaliq. So the Prophet ﷺ decided to launch a preemptive strike against Banu Mustaliq and he gathered the <coughs> companions and they marched in the in Sha'ban in the fifth year of Hijrah. And on this journey he took along with him Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha since her name had emerged. According to most narrations it was only Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. But according to some narrations one other wife accompanied him Umm Salamah radiyallahu anha. Prophet ﷺ marched with approximately 700 of the companions. And when they arrived at Muraysir, which is one of their watering wells where they were camped, the, a, battle took play, a battle took place. Uh, Muslims did not lose but one person. And a number of the enemy were killed. And then the bat- most of them fled. And the reason why there were such few casualties on both sides is... That when the Prophet ﷺ left Medina, Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar, the leader of Banu Mustaliq, he and the others, because he had been planning and preparing for two whole years after the Battle of Uhud. And he did not just have members of his own tribe, but other smaller tribes had joined him. When they learned that the Prophet ﷺ had actually left Medina and marched in their direction, many of the supporting tribes abandoned them. And fled. So it was only Banu Mustaliq who were left. And Banu Mustaliq were caught by surprise and they were quite fearful. As a result, when the battle began, many of them fled and the battle was swiftly over. Only a number of their uh, tribe were killed and the Muslims only suffered one casualty. So there were very few casualties on both sides. Most of them, the rest were all taken captive. Now, after they were taken captive, the, it was the, like I said, it was a tribal society, it was a tribal custom. The, the, the captives of the enemy were taken back to the settlements and the inhabitations of the victors. And they were, they were prisoners of war. But rather than herding them into camps, the prisoners of war were distributed and each family or each of the, uh, a number of the fighters would take the prisoners. And then they were, and this was the Arab custom. It continued with the Muslims, but the Prophet ﷺ gave clear instructions as to how these captives were to be treated in, in the bat, in fact, in the Battle of Badr. And when, when a number of the captives were taken back to Medina, what happened? The Prophet ﷺ set a very small ransom. The people of the Quraysh came, paid their ransom, took the captives away. Those who were unable to pay the ransom, they were offered a number of offers. One of them was to teach the people of Medina, those of them who could read and write, were to teach. Their teaching was in itself a ransom, they became free. Those who were neither able to pay their ransom, nor did they receive the ransom from their families, nor were they able to offer any services, the Prophet ﷺ gave those Muslims a choice of freeing them. He encouraged them to free them for the sake of Allah, and many of them were. Those who weren't, they were under clear instructions to treat them fairly, to the extent that they were to be, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, would feed them better food than they would feed themselves. And this is a reason why many of them embraced Islam. So here as well, the captives were taken, and... Once the dust of the battle had settled, when the captives had been taken, one of the captives was Juwaydiyah, who was a daughter of the same leader, Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar. So she came, she was given over to the responsibility of one of the, one of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. So she came, so she agreed with him that if I pay my ransom, will you free me? He agreed. She had no means to pay the ransom. She came to the Prophet ﷺ and she was extremely beautiful. Umm Mu'min Aisha radiallahu anha narrates in one hadith that since she was on that journey, she was in her tent with the Prophet ﷺ and she saw Juwayriyah come. So when she saw her, she realized how 
captivating she was. Her words are, she was captivating to the eye. And she said, as soon as I saw her, I knew that the Prophet ﷺ would see of her what I could see of her. And she approached the Prophet ﷺ and said to him, O Messenger of Allah, I have come into the share of such and such a person and I have agreed to pay him a ransom and he would free and emancipate me. But I have no means to pay that ransom and therefore I've come to you to seek assistance in paying my ransom. Now, before I continue, I'd also like to mention something else. Some of you may recall uh, that I've mentioned before the story of Safiya bin Tuhiya bin Akhtar. Safiya radiyallahu anha was one of the wives of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam married her in the seventh year of Hijrah after the battle of Khaybar. She was the daughter of the leader of one of the Jewish tribes of Medina, Banu Nadir. Her father's name was Huya bin Akhtab. She was married and she had not been married for long. One day in her marriage, she saw a dream. And in the dream, she saw the moon fall in her lap. So she related this to her husband. So he slapped her. And he said, you're dreaming of the king of Yathrib. You're dreaming of the king of Yathrib. Yathrib was a name given to Medina before the Prophet ﷺ called it Medina. So you're dreaming of the king of Yathrib. And according to some reports, she related this dream to her father also, who also hit her. When the Prophet ﷺ married her, he offered to her, Safiya he said to her that, if you wish, you can go free. If you wish, I offer you my hand in marriage. Do you accept? So her words were, Safiya radiallahu anha, she said, O Messenger of Allah, if I dreamt of marrying you before Islam, then how about now after Islam? So she married him. Now that was the story of Safiya, the daughter of Huya ibn Akhtar, in the seventh year of Hijrah. She dreamt that the moon had fallen in her lap. Juwayriya, the daughter of Al-Harith ibn Abi Dirar, according to one narration, she, three days before the battle of Banu Mustalib, she dreamt, hers was very similar with just one further detail, she dreamt that the moon travelled from the direction of Medina, which she described as Yathrib, and fell into her lap. She says, I as a result of this dream, I hoped for something. She didn't know exactly what it was. So when this battle took place, and then she came to the Prophet wasallam, she said, Ya Rasulullah, I've come to seek your assistance in paying the ransom. Prophet wasallam said, should I not offer you something even better? She said, what of Messenger of Allah? He said that I take you as a wife into my marriage. And I pay the ransom. She said, of course, O Messenger of Allah. So he agreed to pay off the ransom, and he took her as a wife. When the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha relates that when the Muslims heard that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa had married Juwayriya, all the captives who were in the hands of the Muslims, approximately 700 of them, Aisha radiallahu anha says, the Muslims all released their captives and said, Ashar Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that the people of Banu Mustaliq are the in-laws of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and they were all released without any ransom. Then Aisha radiallahu anha continues and says, that I do not know of any woman who was a greater source of blessing and barakah for all her people than Juwayriya, the daughter of Al-Harith. 
At this time, the Muslims had moved away from Banu Mustariq, from Muraisi, and now they was, had started to return to Al Madinat Al Munawwara. Well, actually, they were still camped at Al Muraisi, but the battle had taken place and the Banu Mustariq had fled. So they weren't there, only the Muslims, along with the captives, were in Al Muraisi, and all of this happened. Now, as far as her father is concerned, her father was a leader of Banu Mustariq, Al Harith. Later, he came to Madinat al-Munawwara and he came to see the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam spoke to him and he encouraged him to embrace Islam as a result. And one of the things he did, well, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam encouraged him to embrace Islam. So he and his sons, the brothers of Juwaydiyah radiyallahu anha embraced Islam. And the remainder of Banu Mustaliq also embraced Islam. And from that moment onwards, they became one of the leading supporting tribes of the Muslims. And as I said, they even participated in the bat- in the conquest of Mecca in the eighth year of Hijrah. So this was a background. The, the, this was a Banu Mustaliq, the tribe, sub-tribe of Khuza'a. And this campaign is known as both Ghazwatu Bani Mustaliq, the campaign of Banu Mustaliq, and the campaign of Muraisiyah. And both names, Banu Mustaliq because that was the name of the tribe, and Muraisiyah because that was the name of the actual location where the battle took place. So this is the background. So Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha says, that فَخْرَجْتُ مَعَهُ بَعْدَ مَا أُنزِلَ الْحِجَابِ That I left with the Prophet ﷺ after hijab had been revealed. Meaning, after the laws of hijab had been revealed. And as you know, the laws of hijab weren't introduced in the very beginning of Islam, or even in the very beginning of life in Medina after the hijrah. But there were stages, gradual stages, and the final seal in the gradual introduction of hijab was when, after the marriage of Zainab bint Jahsh radiyallahu anha, when Allah revealed the verse of Surah Al-Ahzab, وَإِذَا سَأَلْتُمُهُنَّ مَتَاعًا فَاسْأَلُوهُنَّ مِنْ وَرَاءِ حِجَابِ ذَلِكُمْ أَطْهَرُ لِقُرُوبِكُمْ وَقُلُوبِهِنْ Well, this was one of the stages. And in there, the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala encouraged the believers that if you need, if you ask for anything from the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, then do so from behind a hijab. So, the, the marriage of Zainab bin Tujahsh radiyallahu anha and her, and the, the revelation of the laws of hijab were before this particular expedition. So that's why Umm Muminin Aisha radiyallahu anha says, I went out with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ba'dama unzil al-hijab after hijab had been revealed, meaning the law of hijab had been sent down. فَأَنَا أُحْمَلُ فِي هَوْدَجٍ وَأُنزَلُ فِيهِ And I would be carried in a litter. And I would be brought down in it. Here she describes how she would actually travel. After the laws of hijab had been revealed, her manner of traveling with the Prophet ﷺ was in a hodaj. And a hodaj, this is an Arabic word, but you find it's even in English because it's very precise. It was a certain, it was a litter which would be carried by a number of people. And the, I'm sure you know what a litter is. The, it would be carried by a number of people, and the hodage was a certain type of litter which was covered with drapes and a canopy. You may have seen pictures of it. So, Mumin Aisha radiallahu anha says that a special litter would be prepared for me. And it would be lowered onto the ground, she would sit inside, and it was an enclosed canopy with blankets or uh, veils and drapes. And then the whole litter would be lifted by a number of people. So she would sit inside, the whole litter would be lifted, placed on the camel over a saddle, 
and that's how she would travel. When she needed to dismount, the whole litter would be brought down by the assistants and placed on the ground. They would disperse and then she would emerge. This is a very important detail because it explains part of what happened later. So she says, for, I would be carried in a litter and carried onto the camel. And I would, when I would dismount, I would be brought down in the same litter, which would be covered uh, under a canopy. So we traveled until when Allah's Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ended this expedition of his. وَقَفَلْ And he returned, i.e. towards Medina. وَدَنَوْنَا مِنَ الْمَدِينَةِ And we drew close to Medina. آذَنَ لَيْلَةٍ بِالرَّحِيلِ He made an announcement at night for the camp to break, بِالرَّحِيلِ And for everyone to travel, to resume their journey. Now, here, Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha has not gone into the details of the expedition or some of the other occurrences, especially that part that I spoke of when Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul attempted to sow discord amongst the Muslims and what actually happened between him, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the young companion Zayd radiyallahu anhu. So here she speaks of the continuation of the journey until they arrived to the last halt just before al-Madinat al-Munawwara. And she then begins that whole section. This is a, a new section and it will take some time, so I'll actually stop here. Uh, otherwise we'll be stuck halfway in the middle. And inshallah, next week I'll detail the account of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sarul, the leader of the hypocrites, and what happened between him and the Prophet wasallam on this journey. His involvement is important because he also explains his involvement in the slander and the calumny against Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, which happened later. So at every stage of the journey, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, the leader of the hypocrites, he along with his henchmen, made every attempt to cause trouble for the Muslims. And that was, had always been the case. Abdullah, and the reason was, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was one of the leaders of the Khazraj tribe. Again, a very tribal society. Medina was occupied by five large tribes, as well as other smaller clans and sub-tribes. Three of these tribes were Jewish, Banu Qaynuqa', Banu Nadir, and Banu Quraidha, and two of them were Arabs, Aus and Khazraj. And ultimately, Aus and Khazraj were related. They both came from the same tribe, and two of their ancestors were both brothers. And Aus and Khazraj were collectively known as Banu Qayla. But they became rivals, bitter rivals eventually. And, but they were the dominant force in Medina before the coming of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Banu Qaynuqa, uh, sorry, uh, Aus and Khazraj. And in fact, this was one of the reasons why the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was invited to Medina. Because the Arabs, Aus and Khazraj, were forever fighting amongst themselves. And even the Jewish tribes were divided. So there were two camps in Medina. One camp consisted of one Arab tribe, along with one Jewish tribe. And the other camp consisted of two Jewish tribes and one Arab tribe. So whenever the Arabs fought each other, the Jewish tribes would fight against each other alongside their allies. And this was the situation in Medina. Uh, their war between Aus and Khazraj had lasted more than a whole generation. And a whole generation of people had grown up in Medina, knowing only battle, strife and war. And they were close to annihilating themselves. This was internecine warfare. So a number of them came to the Prophet ﷺ in the very beginning, some of the Khazraj, six of them came to the Prophet ﷺ before the Hijrah, 
and they spoke to him and offered him the opportunity to come to Medina and serve as an arbitrator, as a leader, as someone, as a unifying force. Otherwise, the whole oasis of Yathrib, which was what it was called before the Prophet ﷺ named Medina, before the whole of Yathrib would perish. So the Prophet ﷺ ultimately later accepted their offer. Now, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was one of the leaders of the Khazraj tribe. But he was a very shrewd politician. As a result, what he would do is, in some of the battles, he would remain aloof. He wouldn't actually participate in the battles. So even though he was one of the Khazraj, he wouldn't participate in all of their battles. As a result, he was regarded as a very shrewd politician, uh, a mover and shaker, and someone extremely influential, very wily. And before the coming of the Prophet ﷺ, some of the people of Medina, since they were looking for someone to appoint who would act as a unifying force, many of the people of Medina were looking up to Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul to serve as this unifying leader who would unite the warring factions of Medina. He was extremely insulted. And not only insulted, but he felt very indignant and passed over. Because some members of his own tribe, the Khazraj, went to the Prophet ﷺ and invited him to come to Medina. Six of them went first, the next year more went, and then the third year a whole number of went, approximately 75, and they were the ones who finally gave him bay'ah, and he agreed with them that he would come to Medina. But the ones who actually instigated all of this, or set this into motion, and who were the most influential in winning the uh, support of Rasulullah wasallam and actually inviting him to Medina, were members of the Khazraj tribe. So Abdullah, for Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul, this was insult upon, upon insult. When the Prophet ﷺ did arrive in Medina, and he was then hailed and recognized as the leader. So even though people did not believe in his religion, he was accepted as the ultimate judicial, military, and political authority in Medina by all the factions. The Aus accepted him. The Khazraj tribe accepted him. Even the Jewish tribes accepted him. And that's why we have the document and the constitution of Medina that was drawn up between the Muslims and the Prophet ﷺ and all of the people. This was in fact one small nation state. All of them had their rights and their responsibilities and their duties regardless of their faith. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul felt that the Prophet ﷺ had robbed him of his leadership and kingship. Otherwise, he had dreamt of and aspired to and was well on his way to becoming the uncrowned king of Medina. And this was swept from under his feet by none other, he felt, than the Prophet ﷺ. So he had a personal animosity towards a messenger ﷺ. And apart from that, there was a new... Factor, which is that in Mecca, the Muslims were few in number. They were oppressed, they were suppressed, they were weak. They were they, they weren't one united force, not because of any disarray amongst them, but because they just came from individual families. They couldn't even offer their prayers in a in congregation. But when they came to Medina, they became a community and a home and a society of their own. As a result of which. They were a bigger threat than they had ever been to anyone in Mecca. So in Medina, a number of the people, inhabitants from all the tribes, they embraced Islam ostensibly and apparently simply because they wanted their way with the Muslims, but at the same time they didn't want, they, they never believed. But because of the new authority and the power and the influence of the Muslims, they decided to join them. There was a large group of them. Well, there was a, a large group of them. And the leader of the hypocrites was none other than Abdullah ibn Ubayy ibn Salul. So he, he, was, he, he, he did become a leader. But he, he became a leader of the munafiqun, the hypocrites. And he played a prominent role. He would always do this. In the battle of Uhud, in the third year of Hijrah, when 
Quraysh attacked Medina. The Prophet spoke to the companions and said to them, what should we do? We have learned that the Quraysh are marching to Medina. So should we remain inside the city and defend our homes from within? Or should we go out and face them in open battle? So the Prophet ﷺ, initially he himself was of the opinion that we should remain within the city. But many of the companions in their passion and in their fervor, they... They said, no messenger of Allah, let us go out. And face them in open battle, not remain within the city. And this is what Allah refers to in the Quran when He says, وَلَقَدْ كُنْتُمْ تَمَنَّوْنَ الْمَوْتَ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَن تَلْقَوْهُ فَقَدْ رَأَيْتُمُوهُ وَأَنْتُمْ تَنْظُرُونَ That indeed you were hoping and aspiring to death. Before you met death, well, here you are, now you have witnessed it, meaning after the battle of Uhud. So this verse was after the battle of Uhud, but now you have witnessed it. And you stared at death in your face. So some of the Sahaba, عنهم, in their passion and fervor, they said, let us go out and face them in open battle. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul never wanted to fight himself. He never wanted anyone else to fight. He was secretly hoping that the Muslims would remain in the city and they, that they would be overrun by the Quraysh. And therefore, they, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul and his henchmen and the hypocrites and the rest of Arabia would be relieved of the Prophet wasallam and the Muslims once and for all. So he was adamant and he was insisting that no, we should remain. The Prophet ﷺ, for his own reasons, was actually of the opinion that we should remain in the city. But the Sahaba عنهم, in their passion and fervor, some of them said, let us face an open battle. Eventually, the Prophet ﷺ accepted the opinion of those who said we should go out and fight. So the Prophet ﷺ left the center of the city of Medina, the masjid and his home, and he marched towards Uhud, which was regarded as being outside the city or the settlement of Medina. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul joined him. He had to. But Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul was in charge of 300 men. So the Prophet wasallam marched with 700. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul marched with 300, 1,000 people in total. Quraysh numbered over 3,000. And as I said earlier, they were assisted by others, including Banu Mustalib. Right at the last moment, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul turned around and told his 300 party, go back to your homes. So right at the last juncture, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul plotted to abandon the Muslims and leave them to their fate. Again, this was very concerning and hurtful to the Muslims, and it reduced the numbers and left the Muslims vulnerable. So, no matter how far you go back, whether it was in the Battle of Uhud, or whether it was on other occasions, including this occasion, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul lost no opportunity to hurt and harm and trouble and inconvenience the Muslims, and he had a personal hatred and animosity towards the Prophet ﷺ. So there were political reasons for what he did, but there were also very vile personal reasons why he directly targeted Rasulullah ﷺ. That's why we will learn in the hadith later that on one occasion, when Umm Mu'min Aisha anha was slandered, the Prophet ﷺ stood up and said, who will excuse me about someone whose hurt has reached me to such an extent that he has, he has even hurt me in my family? And that was Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. He left no stone unturned. So he had very vile personal reasons, and he attacked and hurt the Prophet wasallam even in his family. But subhanAllah, the compassion of Rasulullah wasallam. But when Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul died, his son came to the Prophet ﷺ and said to him, O Messenger of Allah, pray that Allah at least lightens the punishment of my father 
So the Prophet ﷺ took his mantle, his cloak, and gave it to his son and said, use this as a shroud for your father. And he even went to his grave and prayed for him. And Allah revealed the verse, وَلَا تُصَلِّ عَلَىٰ أَحْدٍ مِّنْهُمْ مَا تَأَبَدًا وَلَا تَقُمْ عَلَىٰ قَبْرِهِ That do not pray over any one of them who, who has died and do not stand over his grave. That verse was particularly revealed about the Prophet ﷺ when he prayed and stood over the grave of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sadu. That was his compassion. No matter what he did. So Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Sulul played a very important part in this ghazwa as well. But Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha doesn't mention the other things that he did. She does mention the role he played in slandering her and instigating this calumny against her. So inshallah I'll speak about the munafiqun, the hypocrites, what actually happened on that occasion in the same expedition and the revelation of Surah Al-Munafiqun. And then with that we will continue with the rest of the hadith of Aisha radiyallahu anha. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enables us to understand. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.